All right, glad you're with us. Tough week. Uh, yeah, is it? This is Good Friday. 800-941-SEAN. Toll-free telephone number. You want to be a part of this uh, extravaganza. This is peak week as we anticipated. This into sometime next week. And then as uh, I think it was Dr. Burks just saying that uh, we believe we're at the top. You begin the steady decline and then it becomes somewhat pre- precipitous, uh, which it, we need. What is more than frustrating to me in a hundred different ways is, you know, you're watching these congressmen and women. We all want the country open. Every American expects that you're going to go into your grocery store whenever you want, and you're going to be able to get whatever you want, whenever you want, even during this national emergency and pandemic. If you need to go to the pharmacy, you want to be able to pick up gloves and Purell and medicines and and whatever else you might need. Now, the supply chains for grocery stores, they're all up and running. The supply chains for drug stores are up and running. The supplies that we have needed. Look, grocery stores are open. 7-Elevens are open. Everything that you would want and need is, is on the shelves with the occasional lapses of missing toilet paper and paper towels, which people apparently want to hoard. And anybody that talks about, okay, now we've got to open up the economy and there's a way and, and it's just, it's not a, it's not a simple answer. Nobody's claiming it is, but there are large segments of the economy that are up and running or else you would have nothing in your store. You'd have nothing in your pharmacy. We all want the store shelves stocked and full. We all want the pharmacies shelves stock and full and and we need to be able to pick up our prescription drugs so if you talk about safely opening up parts of the country you're going to hear from the likes of nancy pelosi now congress is not in session right now nancy pelosi i assume is you know has taken her private jet and flown back to san francisco and she is you know maybe even listening to this program in the in the comfort of her gated community multi-million dollar mansion. And now she and all she does is issue edicts and issue proclamations and help start new investigations, uh, which now is forthcoming. They're investigating the coronavirus response. They, they, literally, they can't stop. It's it is obsessive. It is compulsive. It is beyond psychotic. It's every second minute hour of every day. And it's all about Trump. Now Pelosi's lecturing the president that he will only make things worse if he reopens the country too quickly amid coronavirus. Um, okay, now let's let's start with this assumption that the doctors are right, that there always is going to be a rebound, not if, when. There's going to be a rebound. There are going to be hot spots that show up here and there. All right, so now that we've been able to Use the travel ban that no Democrat supported, no media mob person supported. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, they were the ones calling it racist, xenophobic, hysterical and and a bunch of fear mongering. Donald Trump, it is incalculable how much worse this would be for the entire country. Had the president not did not implement the first travel ban, the quarantine in the middle of him being impeached. He did all of this. Uh, subsequent travel bans. He did this 10 days after the first known case of coronavirus in the United States. 
first known case was January 21st. January 31st, he implemented the travel ban. Those that say the president didn't take, didn't, didn't take this seriously, well, a travel ban's pretty serious. Quarantining is pretty serious. They were in the middle of impeachment. The likes of Andrew Cuomo was telling everybody as late as March 2nd, oh, we're New Yorkers. If you don't mind that I'm going to be a New Yorker. And as a New Yorker, uh, you know, nobody needs 10 bullets to kill a deer. Um, All talk, no action. The guy that just dismissed his own task force that said this is predictable. This is a foreseeable real threat. We have a responsibility to act. He didn't buy one. Remember, they predicted they need 16, uh, 15,783 ventilators. He bought none. Would have been 0.4% of his state budget, but he wasted $750 million on a solar factory in upstate, upstate New York that got mothballed. Another $600 million on a computer chip factory that went bust. Another $90 million state dollars on a light bulb company in California. But he couldn't afford the ventilators. He just, I need 30,000 ventilators. Well, it turns out, thanks to the hospitals Trump built in New York. By the way, the Comfort, the Navy hospital ship, has very few patients on it. Same with the Javits Center. Governor Inslee in Washington, they didn't put one patient in the Corps, Energy, uh, and the Corps of Engineers hospital that they built. And now he's sending everything back, thanks to credit to him. They actually did a pretty good job out in Washington and Oregon and even California, not New York. But all the hospitals were built by Trump. The Navy hospital, the largest hospital in the world, other hospitals, all the testing, all the equipment, all the gloves, all the ventilators. Everything was sent. We're not needing anywhere near what we thought we need. Now, those same people that were impeaching the president, not being involved in the coronavirus issue, not smart enough to support the travel ban. Now they want to tell the president when he can and cannot open the economy. Now, it's got to be done and it's got to be done safely. There are some very tricky aspects of the economy that are going to be difficult to open, but there's ways to do it. To me, the answer is it's it's sort of many folds here. We first have to recognize a simple truth. And the simple truth is, one, life is not going to return to what we had as normal before this virus anytime soon. What does that mean, Hannity? It means that, okay, in geographic parts of the country where you don't have a high density of people, it's going to be much easier to open up the economy. Now, again, the economy's open. Truckers are driving. Manufacturers are making medical equipment and and they're pumping out medicines for people. So that part of the economy is going. Uh, The truck drivers are getting the items there. Farmers are farming. Dairy farmers are milking and pouring milk down the sewer, unfortunately. And but all of these things are happening. Your store shelves are filled because Americans are working. Now, to say to the rest of America, you can't open up and work is ridiculous now. If we start with the understanding that there's going to be a new normal, shaking hands, for example, is probably a thing of the past, at least for the near future, probably would be better forever. Elbowing is the new thing. Uh, Using your Purell is probably the new thing. Uh, In certain parts of the country, wearing masks and gloves, that is going to be a part of everyday life, especially for a while. Um, That will be a new normal, if you will. Uh, Then, of course... But, but there's no reason to say that we can't open up a large portion geographically of the country. We can. 
Now, it becomes a lot more difficult when you have a the highest density of people, highest concentration of people in the smallest geographical area. Let's stay with New York City. In New York City, it's going to be more complicated. Now, if you couple together the essential employee model, you can, with every big building in New York, and you couple that with, okay, people that you're still going to have people teleworking. They're going to work from home. Those employees that can, and there's ways, by the way, to monitor whether they're doing a good job. It's not that hard to figure out if somebody's working at home or watching, you know, Days of Our Lives, a soap opera or something. Um, Then those essential employees, the answer is going to come down to testing. And now that Abbott created this five minute test, I mean, it's it's frankly, it's a marvel. 18,000, what they call the uh, uh, Abbott COVID testing machine. There's there's now 18,000, but there are other machines that are in other doctor's offices where they can easily be converted to do this. Now, the problem is, as much as they are producing, they're getting incredible amounts of these tests out and available. They expect, by the way, there's about 50,000 tests a day. They expect to produce about 2 million tests a month. They run about, you know, they're now upping the ante. But if it was me and I wanted to open a city like New York, practicing social distancing by bringing fewer people into the office, by those people in the office a little more distant because it's less concentrated because some people are working from home. Those that go in can wear masks and respirators and, and gloves and whatever else they need. Social distancing will be a part of it. But then you need the testing. And if we were able to mass produce, implement the the Defense Production Act and get 20 more companies to produce the Abbott machine, it's about the size of a toaster, and get tests into every single building in a highly a densely populated area like New York City. And every building can then bring in waves of people that can then get their test. Now, you got to do it in a way where there's medical privacy Nobody's civil rights or liberties are violated. You're not sharing the information with the government. But if somebody wants to work in the building, their essential employee, they can go. They can go get a special time. You roll out test times for everybody. The companies will pay for the tests. You you test people one by one, you know, and then everybody in the building will have been tested negative for COVID-19. It's that simple. And you do it slowly. Now, it becomes a bigger challenge How do we test everybody that's about to get on an airplane? That's going to be tough. Now it's going to be especially hard. All right, how do you get the entertainment business up and and running concerts and and sporting events? That's going to be hard, too. Uh, How do you get people to open restaurants again? That's a complication. I don't have all the answers for, but I think a lot of it is going to be rooted in, you know, let's say you privately get a test. And you don't even have a name associated with it. They give you a little yellow sticker, put it on the back of your license. Uh, Yeah, I'm negative. I can go into the restaurant. That's the only idea I can think of as of now. Now, is that are there going to be people that will counterfeit these things? Of course, no matter what you do, there's going to be those that don't care. But the reason is, as Dr. Oz was saying yesterday, they got the hammer and dance model in Germany. But the reason that their mortality rate has been lower is because of widespread testing. Abbott and their great innovation has now made it possible that we get results in five minutes. 
Now, if we can produce the toaster-like machines and get the medical tests out there and mass-produce them and use the Defense Production Act and give it to every big city and small town that wants one, then we'll be able to test and we'll be able to get up and running. Because if we don't get this economy going, we're not going to recover. This is all about the economy. It's all about Americans getting up and able to work. You know, on the other side of it, Pelosi is warning of an economic depression. At the same time, she's simultaneously uh, blocking a package for small businesses because they want to get money for illegal immigrants. They want to change the voting laws in the country. I mean, it's sick how they act. And she's urging the president to shut the economy down uh, indefinitely. Why? So then she could say this is the Trump economy and use it in 207 days when the American people go to the polls. Well, if she's worried about having a depression, she ought to be working with the president to get all the testing machines and all the hands of all the people that will need them. Now, we're going to talk about the economy with Art Laffer later in the program. Dr. Oz will be taking your medical questions uh, for the full hour in our second hour of the program today. And we'll take get some calls in in the course of the program. We have our Facts Without Fear segment as well. But the answer is getting the economy up and running. You can't and, and do it in a way that if there is a rebound, it will be identified immediately and contained because if you let it run wild out of control and we try to shut the country down again, we'll never recover. We're not designed. We are a consumption economy. We love our store shelves filled. We love our pharmacies full. Well, that's happening because that aspect of our economy is open. Now let's open up the rest of the economy. First geographically, then through testing, you can open up every big city in the country. But you need the test machines. You need the five-minute testing. There's your answer. I mean, they're in the middle of impeachment. The president is instituting travel bans and quarantines and more travel bans and taking it seriously. They, they say nothing. Now they're like, you can't open up the country immediately. Well, where do you think we're going to get our food from and our medicines from? And what about all those Americans that need to go back to work? And what really is infuriating about what Pelosi's doing, she's not working. American truckers are working. Manufacturers are working. Farmers are working. There are many other people that want to work that are being forced into shutdown and work and be willing to put on masks and gloves and even get the testing. The, and, you know, so on the other hand, she's warning of an economic depression. Oh, that's great. But they are busy unveiling uh, a commission to review the coronavirus U.S. response. That's what the Democrats are doing. There's no data to prove that small businesses need more emergency funds. No, the reason she's not voting for any small business money is because that's not where the Democrats want the money to go. They wanted to go. They want to insist on changes in election laws and immigration laws and that illegal immigrants get money out of any new package that that passes on. Look, it's not it, it is the, the surest, safest way. Keyword safest to open up the economy. It is now April the 10th. We are 20 days away from May 1st. Geographically, you're going to see an opening of large portions of the country. There's going to be a new normal gloves, masks, testing. But then you can open up the big city safely, but you've got to start manufacturing millions of these Abbott testing machines about the size of a toaster. That will take the Defense Production Act 
And the sooner we get Americans back up and running, the better it's going to be for everyone and the economy. You can't stay in a state of shutdown forever, and you got to prevent the predictable rebound. You know, I think it's possible to put in a regime that will make it very hard uh, either to willfully circumvent FISA uh, or uh, to do so sloppily without due regard for the rights of the, uh, the American person involved. And also to make it very clear that any misconduct will be discovered and discovered fairly promptly. So I do think we can put in safeguards that will enable us to go forward with this important tool. Uh, I think it's very sad uh, and the people who abused FISA have a lot to answer for because this was an important tool to protect the American people. They abused it. Uh, they undercut public confidence in FISA, but also the FBI as an institution. Uh, and we have to rebuild that. That's the Attorney General Bill Bard. A great interview uh, over two nights with Laura Ingram on the Fox News Channel. And on a variety of topics, uh, we have not been spending the time that we will be spending once this is all taken care of and and hopefully everyone's safely getting back to work but uh i he says the people that abused fisa have a lot to answer for because that important tool to protect the american people was abused they abused it they undercut public confidence in fisa they also uh but also the fbi is in, in an institution we have to rebuild that all the things we were telling you and it goes on from there, and he further goes on to say it's his opinion that to enable us to go forward with that tool, we have to have the safeguards in place. He thinks that the Durham report maybe, probably will be a byproduct only of his activity, but his primary focus isn't to prepare a report. He is looking to bring justice to people who are engaged in abuses if he can show that there were criminal violations and that is the focus, that's where the focus is on. And, you know, as a, being a lawyer, you yourself building these cases is especially the sprawling case. You know, we have between us that went on for two to three years. It takes time. It takes some time to build the case. So he's diligently pursuing that case. My own view is the evidence shows and we're not dealing with just mistakes and sloppiness. There's something far more troubling here, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. And I think what happened to President Trump was one of the great, greatest travesties in American history. And without any basis, they started this investigation of his campaign. And even more concerning, actually, is what happened after the campaign. A whole pattern of events while he was president to sabotage the presidency. Well, it sounds like premeditated fraud on a FISA court. You know, it's amazing to watch the mob and the media. You know, we have put a timeline up on Hannity.com of what we were saying when about the virus. Now, there was certain, like, for example, we played for you some comments of Anthony Fauci where he says Americans have nothing to worry about, about coronavirus. Now, part of it was based on lies because of China. We weren't being told the truth. You can blame some of that misinformation, a lot of it actually on them, as Dr. Burks has said many times. Uh, also an evolution, you know, for in the beginning, nobody knows how bad anything was going to be. But from very early on, January 27th, when I had Dr. Fauci on TV, then again on the 28th, and on, I'm sorry, then on February 10th, and then 
I had Dr. Josh and a team of medical experts January 28th. The travel ban was the 31st. You know, the first known case in America was January 21st. We, we were covering it January 27th on, ha- on Hannity. And then as you go throughout the crisis, you try to give people perspective. You say, well, don't forget, you know, everyone forgets we lose tens of thousands of people every year with the flu. Or 60.8 million Americans contracted H1N1 virus. Or that hundreds of thousands of people, or if you're Joe Biden, it's N1H1, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, they ended up going to hospitals and having to go into the hospital because of all of this with H1N1. And then we lost 17,000 Americans, over 12,000 Americans in a year. Every life is perfect. I, I wish we never had pandemics. But I was warning people early on in the late days of January and early February that I was concerned because people that were asymptomatic with this particular version of the flu, remember they first discovered it December 30th only of last year. They didn't name it till January 7th of this year. So it's been an evolution. We didn't think it'd become a worldwide pandemic. Um, but as you learn more, you do more. Nobody else in the media, the, the Democrats were busy impeaching the president through February 5th. Nancy Pelosi, January 24th, what was she doing? She was, um, I'm sorry, February 24th was telling people to go to Chinatown in San Francisco. Come visit, it's safe. March 2nd, guys like Andrew Cuomo, with all respect, we're New York. Excuse, I don't want to be arrogant. Uh, our arrogance as New Yorkers. I speak for the mayor also on this one. We think we have the best health care system on the planet right here in New York. So uh, when you're saying what happened in other countries versus what happened here, uh, we don't even think it's going to be as bad as it was in other countries. You know, and it's like the, the, you got the media mob, and then what they do is they slice, dice, and edit. They're not going to put in the real timeline when I was warning of people about it being asymptomatic and people that are carriers and it's highly uh, contagious and they can infect other people. And, for example, early on, what were we told? We were told early on it doesn't impact young people. We were told that for the first couple of months. Then it turns out, yeah, young people are being impacted by it. We did, But every doctor, Fauci himself on down, was saying it. Um, But with that said, it would have been exponentially worse had the president, not in the middle of him being impeached, implemented the travel ban. Nobody in the mob and the media gives him credit for that. Nobody, you know, go back to March 3rd, Super Tuesday, not that long ago. Nobody was covering coronavirus wall to wall like this. We didn't expect it would be exponentially worse, but it became. So you got to deal with the hand you dealt And then you got to do everything you can do, further mitigation efforts. First, the 15 days to stop the spread. Then the April 30th deadline. We're 20 days away from that. But at some point now, because of science, we are now going to be able to test people, which means that'll be helpful in opening up American business as quickly as possible. I don't know if, if in the interim, maybe for restaurants and airlines, You might have to put everybody in masks and gloves, take temperatures until you can get the Abbott five minute test. And and maybe we're going to have to show up at airports, you know, four hours early and get a COVID-19 test. And we want the airline industry up and running again. I don't know for the time being. 
Now, eventually, this is you got to watch out for the predictable um, efforts. Uh, the everybody will predict. There's going to be a rebound. It's not if; it's when. It's going to happen. Anyway, eight hundred nine four one Sean toll free telephone number. Now, on the issue of the deep state and Spygate, there's been so much in terms of new developments. Uh, our friend John Solomon has not given up the story. And, you know, on top of what the Attorney General Barr has had to say, you know, Russia case footnotes are about to be declassified as it relates to the Horowitz report. He's got his new uh, website up and running, justthenews.com. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Sean. A lot of, a lot of big developments in the middle of a pandemic, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, well, we got to get the country up and running. Now, we do. you have not kept your eye off the ball. You've been unpeeling the onion. A lot has happened since we last spoke. Right. Let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, so I think one thing, what the, what the Attorney General said yesterday was a, a big evolution of even what the Justice Department has said in the past. He did not believe there was any basis to open this investigation up. That is a very profound statement. And we're going to see today, later today, I believe, uh, we're going to get these uh, footnotes unredacted from the bottom of the Michael Horowitz uh, report. And they're going to show why Attorney General Barr would make such a claim. Inside the FBI's own files, as they were starting this investigation, as Christopher Steele was starting to put his dope into the dossier and give it to the FBI, it turned out the FBI had strong reason to believe what he was getting at that moment was Russian disinformation. It was propaganda from the beginning. And the FBI knew that, and they kept that from Congress. They kept it from the American people. They kept it from uh, the FISA court. That's why you can see the attorney general making such a broad, sweeping statement like he did to Laura the other night. Okay, so everything that we had reported, premeditated fraud on a FISA court, right. multiple warnings. These are stories you broke, for example, about Kathleen Kavlak and right. Bruce Orr. As early as August, they were warned, uh, don't trust Hillary Clinton's bought and paid for Russian dossier. Uh, number one, she paid for it. Number two, it's not verified. Number three, Christopher Steele has an agenda, uh, a political agenda. Yeah. And but they used it anyway, and, and it's unverifiable, and it turns out to be debunked. Yeah, and now there could be a new element. It might have been Russian disinformation all along. They knew he was working for Clinton and Fusion GPS, and they fed him stuff. Now, why is that significant? Remember what the Obama administration told us at the end of their term. The, not only did the Russians hack, they tried to do this to help Donald Trump get elected and Hillary Clinton to get defeated. Well, here's the thing. If they were feeding bad information about Trump to harm Trump, that undercuts potentially what the Obama administration tried to sell us at the end of their administration. Yeah, which is, by the way, that this was all designed to help President Trump. Now, that's right. Even the New York Times had reported, oh, finally, late in the game, it was likely Russian disinformation from the beginning. That's right. Well, these footnotes are going to make that clear. I think we're going to learn some other things about problems that the senior leadership of the FBI learned at very early on that show that this was not paper clerical errors going on here. These were systemic decisions to avoid telling the court the truth, avoid telling the American public the truth. And I think over the next few weeks, as more declassifications occur, and I hear more coming, we are going to get a far greater picture. I mean, we saw yesterday the transcript of, remember, we can go back to last fall, you and I talked about this, Papadopoulos caught on a transcript telling the FBI informants before the election we didn't hack, right? We, didn't, we weren't involved with the Russians. In the so hack. what is Pop, well, poor Papadopoulos? You yeah. know, I, I read something sad. You know, apparently it's caused a lot of strain in his new marriage, and, right. and I can understand it. Um, 
uh, and I feel sorry for them. I mean, they're wonderful, yeah. very nice people. That both of them. Yeah. Um, well, and, when you're in the line I'm, like that, it's tough. It's it. Listen, <laughs> being in the line of fire is a lot <laughs> rougher than people know. Yeah, and you, uh, you know it, and I know it, but not, a lot of people do not. Your DNA does not uh, is not made for this type of uh, public uh, beatdown every day. But yeah, it's true. And it's it's hard. It's you know, all of a sudden you're front and center and a part of a national narrative. But this guy went to jail for nothing. Yeah, that's what we're going to find out. It's going to have been nothing. And just and like Carter just Page like was surveilled and, for nothing. And Donald and Trump Carter Page, Donald Trump was spied on for nothing. And yep. General Flynn was, they abused their power with him, too. They knew That's he right. did nothing wrong. How yeah. do we fix this mess? Well, I think, you know, there are, uh, there's going to be a, probably a small number of criminal prosecutions of people that will make a very large statement. It may be a small number, but a large statement. But I think the, the greatest thing that we're going to learn is how this was carried out in more specificity, the level of deception and, and playing within the bureaucracy that went on to achieve this sort of false narrative in the media. And I, I think shaming is going to play a big role of this as well. There's going to be some criminal prosecutions, I think, a small number, as I've been saying all along. Well, that's what Barr was saying in a statement. Fired. He couldn't be any more clear that yeah. Durham is not all about a report. He's all about you know, looking for criminal activity, and that means grand juries and charges and prosecutions. And there's been some of that going on. I've seen some evidence of the grand jury work in the last four, five, six weeks. It's been going on even in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and I think we're going to get a better sense of what that looks like. Well, that's the first time you've told me that. What do you know? Well, I know of some witnesses that receive subpoenas. I know of some witnesses that have appeared before the grand jury. And uh, again, I think it's very foundational. They're building a very, as the, as the attorney general said, it takes time, right? They're building Where is this taking place, in D.C. or in the Boston area? D.C. is my understanding. Yep. Okay. My, uh, at least the grand jury subpoenas that I've heard from people were in the D.C. area. But there, there could be multiple places where this is going on. But uh, the one I'm most familiar with were some grand jury subpoenas that came out of the D.C. area. They've got to build this case methodically, and, you know, they have a good starting point. We know there was a crime clearly identified in the IG's report. A FBI lawyer changed the document to deceive the court. They literally fraudulently changed the document to deceive the court. That's a crime. I believe they will start there, and then they will wind back. Why did that person do that, and who else was involved, and who instructed that, and what other intentional acts did we learn about? that uh, occurred in the same manner. What about all the people that signed the FISA applications knowing that the top of a FISA application says verified and none of it was verified? What about the people who put their signature on it like James Comey? And, yeah, and Andrew McCabe and Rod Rosenstein. Every time you played that Rod Rosenstein clip on your show, you're reminded, oh, we did this right, we did this right. Those guys lied to us when they said that they did nothing right. Nothing about this was right. And last week, what did we learn? 29 or 29 FISAs reviewed all of them wrong. The FBI has not been following the law for a long time on this, and it, it, there has to be a reckoning. I don't believe that those people will be prosecuted for signing the documents. Now, there may be other questions, right? False testimony is an area that I believe Durham has been focusing on based on the grand jury subpoenas and questions that I've heard. It's possible that some of the people who gave false representations to Congress could get prosecuted for those false representations. So that's an area I'd keep an eye on. What about guys like Roger Stone? I mean, not only did they have a pre-dawn raid of his house, and all yeah. they needed to do was call his attorney, and he would have surrendered. Same with Manafort. But, you know, 29 guys, tactical gear, CNN cameras, frogmen in the backyard. And for what? 
it, it, it's, it's because too much of our law enforcement has become a law and order television show instead of being law and order by the book, by, by the law. And that, that's what we got to fix. We have to fix that culture. And I think that Attorney General Barr really made some profound statements about how, he, how determined he is to fix this culture. It has I got to a be break, but cheap. we'll stay on at justthenews.com. John Solomon, thank you. All right, glad you're with us. It is this Good Friday edition, Sean Hannity Show, Easter on Sunday. Now, I know it's not going to be the same for everybody. That hurts, but happy Easter to everybody. It is a time of renewal and rebirth, if you will. Uh, Christ rising from the dead after giving his life, ultimate sacrifice for mankind to reconcile mankind to God, um, and all of which I believe. And um, these are tough times. I just watched the president in an exchange, you know, well, why did you shut down the country? And you don't have enough of it. And it's like, you know, unfortunately, from the political standpoint and the mob and the media, in this case, it was fake news Acosta. It's just there's nothing that the president can do that they're ever going to give him credit for. Nobody. I mean, we played Anthony Fauci being wrong on this in the very beginning. In part, we were lied to. That played a part in it. We were talking to Dr. Fauci on January 27th about this and early on talking about, well, what about all these asymptomatic people that uh, are running around contagious and how bad is it going to be? No one expected it would be this bad. Nobody expected. uh, But so you, you react, you adapt. Now the question is the president was saying he's got a big decision to make. And that is how do we open the country? How do we open it safely? Now, certain geographical areas of the country, it's not going to be as difficult. Remember, the country's still open. Because if the country was totally closed off, your grocery stores would be empty and closed. The Walmarts would be closed. The Rite Aids and CVSs would be closed. All these places would be closed. They're not. Now, we want our shelves filled. We want our medicines in our pharmacies We want to be able to go to Walmart. We want to be able to pick up the supplies we need, bring them back home so we can continue to live our lives. That that part of the economy never shut down, never can shut down. So opening it up, you know, it will be a fairly, look, there'll be a new normal, as we've been saying. Part of the new normal is, okay, in areas with, with high density populations like New York City, it's going to be way more difficult than in more rural areas of the country. But these these companies that are building the medical supplies are up and the ventilators are up. The farmers are up. The producers, uh, the, the, the packers are up. The drivers are up. You know, Nancy Pelosi say, you better not open up the country too soon. We don't really have. You know, what about all those people? She's saying you're from the comfort of our gated community, multimillion dollar mansion. She needs to be at work. There might be a depression. Open up the economy. Anyway, Dr. Oz is back with us, and we, I'm going to ask him this one question, and then we're going to take calls for the full hour. Uh, Dr. Oz, how are you, sir? I'm doing very, very well. Can I make fun of you a little bit? Please do. Please please do. Yeah, please hit me while I'm down. Um, <laughs> so you give, you're giving out advice, I notice, on how to sleep better if coronavirus anxiety is keeping you up at night. There's one problem. I happen to know you now, and you. I happen to know your hours now, and <laughs> I happen to know you don't sleep. So it's like you you giving advice on sleep or me 
in the middle of all this, even with my pillow, I'm not getting much sleep. Although I'm sleeping harder than ever when I do sleep is a little ironic because you're not sleeping. How many hours do you sleep a night? Well, normally I sleep seven hours, but I have never been busier in my life than what has happened here. And I got to say, part of the reason is because research is taking place on every continent. So when I get up in the morning, like this morning, I got up at, you know, before six, because I had to do some, I do Elvis Duran's show, who's a good friend, and he's a, again, he speaks to a very different audience, and I want to get to that audience on Tuesday. And as I get yeah, he's up... A, he's a great guy, by the way. I, I adore him. And we, you know, I, we're very close friends, and he really knows how to communicate, and folks listen to him, they trust him, so I want to be able to go on with him and share insights. any case, I'm getting up to do that, and what do I notice? An email from Didier Rolt, that's, again, the, the French physician we've been talking about. He just met with Macron last night, and he sent me the data that he shared with Macron. Now, I wasn't expecting that. but So instead of going back to sleep again for an hour, I end up spending the next couple hours putting the pieces together for Fox and Friends this morning. And that's been my life. But to your point, normally, in my day job, if I'm either operating or doing my show, and there's not a pandemic taking place, I'm in bed by 1030 and I get up at six, and I'm pretty ruthless about it. I won't. You know what I don't do? I learned I don't like to answer emails after ten because they're never good news, right? You never get a good email at ten o'clock at night. Something bad just happened that you're going to. You, gonna... Listen, I'll give you five <laughs> weeks in my political world. It'll be much worse. Whatever the email is, <laughs> by a multiple of a hundred. Except you're dealing with life and death, so maybe that's not fair. Um, all right, let's start with okay. How do we safely? I think you'll agree with me, certain geographic parts of the country, we could probably open now. I think you'll agree with me that a new normal, like in a city like New York, is going to include gloves and social distancing and masks. But I think the answer is massive manufacturing of the Abbott test. Your thoughts on how you can open up a city like New York? Without question. We've been flying blind. If you had to point to one critical issue that everybody would agree with, no matter what their political persuasion, it would be that we didn't have testing in a timely fashion. No scenario, no simulation had ever taken into account that possibility that you wouldn't be able to see, literally, your enemy at any capacity, even see the victims that it had hit. And so if we're going to unleash the economy, which obviously we have to do at some point, and this, you know, this is obviously disproportionately hitting poor people, folks who are manual laborers, the people who desperately need jobs who don't have a paycheck coming in no matter what, like me and you, for those folks to get back in, we're going to have to find a way of testing. So you bring up the Abbott test, and I've been dialoguing with them, um, and, I, and I really do like these guys a lot. They're very up in front. By the way, I have nothing but praise for them. It's a five-minute test. It's incredible. So their numbers are actually pretty good. They're making a million of the tests that take six hours a week, and they're making, you know, like 350,000 of the five-minute tests a week starting this week. So that's over a million tests a week. And best, you know, that McClellan review that I've been reading and others have been influenced by that sort of maps out a strategy would argue that you need about three-quarters of a million tests a week unless there's an outbreak. So let's just say it's a million a week. We have enough tests to do it. What we have to be able to do is get them to where the people are. So if you look around the country, in New York, in New York State, you know, when they mean people get to test, at least one out of three, maybe a little more, are positive. In most of the countries, one out of ten. So we need to put the test where the people are who have the problems. And in a place like New York City, it's going to have to be on you know, public areas that are readily, readily accessible. Thank goodness it's going to be warmer weather. I don't care if they're intense, but they have to put those tests everywhere. Around the country, same thing. And we're going to have to let you know if you have certain symptoms. Maybe we do it on your phone. They use technology in a private way that only you control. But if you think you're having a problem, it should be really easy for you to find a place that can test you immediately. Then 
you go home if you're sick, and if you're not sick, you know, whatever needs to happen. Oh, you uh, agree no. that, like, for example, if every building in New York had, if they, for example, every building has got to accept that there's going to be more people uh, working from home. Yep. Then the peop- essential personnel can start coming in. But if we have enough of those toaster-sized tests, and we could use the six-hour test. You could take the test one day, and if it comes back right, you, could, you come back the next day, and you can work. You can get in the building. You know, you could put, like, a green little sticker on the back. Uh, I said go before. Green. How about green for go and red for stop? You know, right. something like that. Just simple to identify, okay, I've been tested, and I'm negative. Or I have the but, antibodies. But the thing is, I don't think that's where the risks are. People working in a nice office building, they have a lot of backup systems. They don't go home with fear in their heart. The people that are going to be the problem are folks that the father of two kids married, he's the only breadwinner and he's on, you know, he's making a minimum wage or close to it. When he doesn't feel well, he's still going to go to work. That guy has to get tested because he's incentivized to not play by the rules because he's trying to feed his kids. And so we need to make it easy for everyone to get tested because that's how it'll rise up through the ranks pretty quickly. And I think that's very doable. But to your point, if we have the testing and we now have it, we got to distribute it. But there's one other part of this we have to do. It's really important. It's not naturally in our instinct to go quarantine ourselves. Most people don't know how to do that. And you definitely don't know how to identify people that you probably inadvertently infected. So we have to help you figure that out. If we can do those two things, Sean, and then add one last thing, make sure we have enough hospital capacity so if we do have a slip up, you know, we can save people, then we can launch the country. And p- political leaders have a plan B besides pulling the emergency brake. Hey, and by the way, New York, that. there's like hardly any patients on the on the Navy ship, the Comfort. Yeah, no. They're not filling up the Javits Center either. I mean, it, it, Americans cooperated more than I think they ever, anybody ever thought. And I think they would do more. And I think people are willing to keep up social distancing and wearing gloves and masks and using Purell, et cetera, and for the safety of other people. I think people are willing to do that now. And for a period, I mean, we don't want it to be the rest of our lives. Probably handshaking is finished. But I think I, I would use the Defense Production Act and get the Abbott tests. I would be making millions of those machines, tens of millions of them, as quickly as possible. Is that a good idea? It is a good idea. Can I ask one last thing? Just I'm curious about your opinion mm-hmm. on this. That, you, know, you know, 80% of questions are statements in disguise. This is not one. This is a real question. What should we do with older Americans who have chronic morbidities like high blood pressure, which once again in this French study that I just got this morning, it was the most important thing that stuck out at me, was how much that changed your chance of dying or having a major problem was if you had high blood pressure. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But let's say you're older with high blood pressure or diabetes or some chronic illness. What do we do to make sure you don't get ill? Is it fair to say you got to stay away from everybody else? You're doubly sensitive. We're going to bring you your food. We'll do whatever we can. Please try to stay out of the we way. We can't do it in perpetuity, but maybe they're the people that get the, you know, we have tens and tens of millions of masks in the pipeline, N95 masks. Maybe they get the masks and the gloves themselves. You know, I'm worried about how do we open up a restaurant? How do we open up the airline industry? I mean. But for 20 for somethings. Getting on a plane, going to a restaurant, going to a bar, they'll spread the infection and they'll get sick, but they won't get that sick because that's historically what's going on with this virus. At least that becomes a more a reasonable goal unless they go see grandma. And then grandma, unfortunately, you know, has a real problem, especially if she's in a nursing home and then everybody in the nursing home gets sick. That, that's what we have to prevent. So we have to, be, and we're going to have to make a conscious decision about this because we love our parents and our in-laws and everybody else, we're going to have to make, take the extra step to protect them. But to protect them... See, I think most Americans will do that. 
I think, uh, listen, I, I, I have a, a older person in my life, recently went through chemotherapy. Nobody got near this person unless you were wearing a mask and gloves. That's it. Mm-hmm. Nobody. And yeah, because you have, if you have that compromised immune system, I mean, you, you just have to do these things. But like a restaurant, I mean, how are we going to open a restaurant, Dr. Oz? That's going to be tough. How are you going to get the airline industry up and running if you don't test everybody? Well, the restaurants, I've been talking to friends. My daughter's a chef. You know, but my wife and my right. daughter are chefs. So I've been talking to them. Doing How a come you're so skinny? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time to eat the food because I'm talking with you. Yeah, to, that's true. Trying to find solutions. But here's, here's, what I, um, here's what I'm hearing. They're saying we're going to have to put our tables six feet away from everyone else's table. So within the table that you're at, that's a clear exposure, mm-hmm. right? So you're going to go to dinner with people that you spend time with and you trust a lot. But... Aside from that, the people at the next table who you don't know are not going to be on top of you, which, as you know, if you go to a good New York City restaurant, they're packing them in there like sardines. We're not going to be doing that. Those, you know those capacity numbers that they put on buildings all over the country? They're designed mm-hmm. for fires. Now they're going to be designed for infections. And so instead of having a 300 capacity, Oof. it's going to be a 150 that mean, capacity. That means concerts are going to be on hold for, you know, through, you know, December and, well, and sporting events. I've spoken to big-time promoters who do the, all the artists that you know uh, completely gone this year. I mean, they're not there because people are, hey, when you survey Americans, this has been done. Eighty percent of Americans will not go to a concert. We're not going to a, a, a football game or a basketball game or a hockey wow. match. They're not going to do it. If, even if you were to open it up, people can easily sit six feet from each other because no one's going. So what's the point of opening up the facility? It's a pain in the neck. And again, I think this is one year of intense pain. But then after that, at least our economy's functioning. And there's a loss. There's a loss, significant well, loss. Well, we, get, that, we can't. Least, uh, let us say hi to Peter in Michigan. Peter, say hi to Dr. Oz. Hi, Dr. Oz. How are you? How are you, Peter? What's your question? Okay, well, look, uh, we're on another lockdown here for another three weeks in Michigan. The governor, governor just ordered this. I think we're having some mental health issues here that no one's really talking about and addressing. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? This was a huge crisis in China. When they locked down uh, the Wuhan area, and they, you know, they had initially 60 million people locked down, but subsequently by 11 million, they did studies on the mental health, and about half the people had significant depression. I and mean, we're social creatures, right? We're supposed to be with each other. Let's just look at the size of our brain. To go hunting, you need about a walnut-sized brain. The whole reason the prefrontal cortex grew out massively in humans is for two reasons. To look at each other's face and figure out what are you really thinking. Forget the words. What are you really thinking? And then to hear your voice and process it so I can really get into the, the deeper elements of what you're trying to get across. So if you can't do that because you're locked away by yourself, it starts to create a problem. And, of course, the people who suffer the most are the folks who are already having difficulty financially. Then they take it out on their kids and their spouses, and it becomes a, a real crisis. And we're already seeing that with suicides, and I'm not saying it's causing these, but these are being noticed already, uh, spousal abuse, uh, you know, and, and subsequently we'll have additional problems. So it becomes a worry. So here's just one basic tip that I can offer. What we really need is hope, and the best way to get hope is to have purpose. And this is a time when you can, you know, there's, it's a time for battlefield commissions because we're in the war. So go lead something. Go figure something that you can make a difference on. Because if you don't feel like you have any control over your destiny, that is the ultimate stressful experience. But if you think, you know what, it's not a big deal, but I can go feed my neighbor, help my, the neighbor's kid get, get better education because I know how to homeschool math. Or I'm going to go over to the older couple and see if I can go shopping because I'm, you know, I'm going anyway. I'll go for them. Those kinds of initiatives really add up rapidly. And again... Michigan's got three more weeks, but I think May 1st, I, I, most people are going to be pretty comfortable. One last thing. 
You can socially distance outside. Fresh air and a little sun goes a long way. And I, I'm not I'm not saying that I'm not, it does help me a lot. Um, but uh, more calls for Dr. Oz. Good call, by the way. Uh, we'll get to your calls. 800-941-SHAW. Next half hour. Straight to the calls. All right, 25 till the top of the hour, 800-941-SHAWN. If you want to be a part of this program, we're taking calls for Dr. Oz this half hour. Art Laffer on the economy at the top of the next hour. Uh, let's say hi to Missy is in West Virginia. Missy, uh, welcome aboard. Say hi to Dr. Oz. Hi, Dr. Oz. How are you, Missy? What's your question? My question is, so the concern is that the people shedding this that may not show symptoms of it, are you certain that they're going to get antibodies? And my reasoning for asking that is, I've lived with patient zero for 20 years. He gets the flu every year. I did not. I have an autoimmune disease. I have Hashimoto's. I don't get sick, and I don't know why. So do I have immunity to the flu? And are there people who are going to be exposed to it, not have antibodies, and not just get it because they're just not going to? The answer is yes, I think. But we don't know for sure about the antibody part and how much you'll have, but there are definitely some people who are just not going to have symptoms. You know, this virus invades us through a receptor in our nose called an ACE2 receptor. You know, like an ACE bandage? ACE2 receptor. So some people have more than others. And some parts of the world, like Northern Europeans, they just have more of those receptors in their nose. So they end up getting more virus. Now, does that translate to more illness? Does it make them uh, you know, be ill for longer? We don't know. But we do know that it's a, a penalty shot. It's just genetic, and that's going to be in their future. Interestingly, folks in Asia have less of those receptors. So uh, your reason that you don't get sick may be partly related to the fact that the influenza virus, which is a different virus, doesn't get into your body quite as readily. However, let's go back to the real fundamental issue. If you are ill and don't have any symptoms, your body is not irritated by it. So there's a likelihood that your antibody response might not be as aggressive. And there have been cases already of people who have had the infection, tested negative, so theoretically they're over it, right? And normally you'd think, okay, you're immune to it. But then they get the infection again. Now, one of two things happen. Either they got over that infection and they got a different version of this virus to infect them, which is a sort of a hassle because now you've got to make two vaccines. Or the fact the virus never left their body. It just hid. Like, you know, chickenpox becomes a zoster, you know, that shingles. So sometimes viruses just don't go away. They just hide for a while and they come back up again when something else happens. So that's another possibility. It's not common, but, but that might be an issue. And finally, if you don't have a big immune response, you can still make lots of antibodies. That's not that we don't know exactly why some people and some don't, but that's always going to be a possibility. Staying on the same topic, uh, topic, Missy, thank you. Randy is in Michigan. Randy, say hi to Dr. Oz. Uh, good afternoon. Same similar question as a person who's recovering from the virus donates his plasma twice. Two year, a year from now, if there's a flare-up, does he have enough immunity left to protect them, and would he be able again to give plasma in another year? So we only have four months of experience with this virus. If you go back even to December, which no, no, we didn't even know about it back then, and uh, there's no way of predicting what's going to happen in a year. Theoretically we should still have enough antibodies in us in a year. That would be the natural process. If you've hit, been hit by the flu, that, you have that antibody in you for at least a year. And all we've got to do is get to a year. And the good news, of course, is pe- people are going to be recovering 
uneventfully from this virus, even in a year, be able to give their antibodies if yours have run down. The bigger concern I start to have is we don't know how long the antibodies will last for. So it's a possibility that in some people they'll wear off in 6, 8, 10, 12 months. So we want to get the vaccine as soon as we can so we can build that immunity. And herd immunity, not herd mentality, but herd immunity is when 60, 70% of people have a, uh, in, in, in the antibodies because that way you have a firewall to protect you know, the virus from raging through a population. Right now we've got, in places like New York, we think maybe 15% of the people, maybe 20% have had the infection, it might be much higher. Most parts of the country, it's you know, very low. So we don't really have protection. So we don't want to, you know, we don't want to do that experiment. Randy, thank you. Renee in North Carolina. Uh, Renee, you're on with Dr. Oz. Glad you called. Thank you, Dr. Oz, for everything you're doing. I have a question about, first, how do you clean fresh produce to get rid of corona on it? And secondly, is it killed by either sun or uh, sub-freezing temperatures? Uh, We don't think temperature kills it. Um, It doesn't last as long in the heat and especially when it's dry. It needs a little moisture to keep it alive. Because, you know, viruses aren't really alive till they're in your cell. They're just sort of sitting there like seeds. And so if they're in moisture, they, they like that. If it's dry and it's hot, and you know, they don't last so long. Uh, produce is an interesting issue. We don't, we don't have any evidence that you can eat coronavirus and get sick. I know it sounds crazy, and I'm sure if you ate enough of it, you would. But that doesn't seem to, how the, to be how the virus gets us. So the bigger issue would be you touch the fruit, touch your face with your fingers, then you get it in your nose, your eye, or someplace like that. So what we do in our families, we, we wash it. If it's something that can't get washed easily, uh, we try to heat it. Because, uh, you know, if you, if you cook it, you'll, you'll kill anything. But um, soap and water is an incredibly powerful combination because the soap actually penetrates, it, it, it perforates the place where the virus, sort of the, the, the home that it makes for itself. And then you surround it with soap, uh, the, 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 the they're called micelles, you know, it's these, these little pieces of soap, and it, it carries away with the water. That's why it's a very inexpensive, very re- reproducible. It doesn't taste too good, uh, which is why you, you, there, are others, there are some soaps that are made specifically for produce, but that's not a big risk, I don't think. The, the container it comes in might be. All right, good call, Renee. Thank you. Ed is in Kansas City. Ed, you're on with Dr. Oz. Glad you called. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I, I just wonder if Dr. Oz knows of any studies that have looked at the effect of statins, those cholesterol-lowering drugs, on outcome because they're, they have uh, anti-inflammatory properties? Yeah, I, I, I like statins because of the anti-inflammatory po- properties. Uh, not everyone needs to be on one, but when they're appropriately used, it can be very helpful. Uh, I'm unaware of any studies showing that they're beneficial. Uh, there are other uh, products that seem to, like the hydroxychloroquine we've been talking about, that help with immune mediation and folks with lupus, but they're more powerful. It might be that the Statin drugs are, are just aren't strong enough to, to move the needle yet. But again, we're discovering things. I'll tell you something I just found out uh, that you might, all might be interested in. That you know, I was, we were talk, calling around to these European investigators, and that these, that these, this large study in Europe showed that 85% of people uh, who have coronavirus, when you examine them, actually don't have normal taste anymore, and 88% don't have normal smell. Now, it gets better. But that might be a nice way of identifying who's got the virus. So instead of just relying on the tests from Abbott, for example, which we're going to need to make the definitive test, you can see, okay, everyone just, this is an automated system. Can you taste this? Can you taste this at a wafer? Good, go. You, next, go. Next, no, oh, you got you. You're not normal. You've got to get checked. Same for temperature scans. So there might be ways of automatically screening huge groups of people and then sending the ones you're worried about to get tested. 
All right, good call. Appreciate it. Uh, back to our phones. Diane is in Yorktown Heights, New York. Uh, Diane, glad you called. You're on with Dr. Oz. Hi, Dr. Oz. I believe I had the, uh, the virus back in early February but did not get tested. I had every symptom. When can I get an antibody test? We should have antibody tests next week. That's what I'm being told. I've, we've been interviewing members of the task force. They've been saying that for a while. They had a misstep. Um, you know, two weeks ago, so it never got out. But I'm thinking by the end of next week, uh, there'll be some out there. You probably won't be the first person they want to get to because they want to go to healthcare providers. You know, and just to make the, the most important thing for us to do is find doctors, nurses, and technicians who have already had it and are safe because getting them back into the ER uh, and the ICU is really helpful. and They don't have to be quite as meticulous potentially because they can't theoretically get it again this quickly. And, but I think by the end of this month, I'm hoping you could get tested and then you'd know for sure. All right, good call. Thank you, uh, Diane. Let's get back to our phones. Let's say hi to Don in Colorado. Don, how are you? You're on with Dr. Oz. Glad you called. Um, with patients having a blood oxygen level in the 70s, has anybody tried a hyperbaric chamber? Excellent question. The concept, of course, is instead of atmospheric pressure, where uh, you can actually pressurize the air around you and drive more oxygen into the body. Uh, the problem is... Those devices are incredibly clunky to work around, and we don't have enough, even close. And you have to completely clean it every single time to be able to put patients in there because they're different strains of the virus. So it's just logistically an impossible task. And if you're already on a breathing tube, putting you in there is you know, darn near impossible because you, you have to seal the thing off from the outside world. So unfortunately, it's not a practical solution, but theoretically, it could have worked if we had enough. Good call again. Thank you. Uh, let's say hi to, uh, it's, uh, is it Josie? Is it Josie in Virginia. How are you, Josie? Glad you called. You're on with Dr. Oz. 800-941-SHAWN, by the way. Just calls for Dr. Oz. Everybody's so quiet about the uh, various vitamin D and A and other things that are effective on the lungs, anything holistic. They're, not, they're just waiting for a vaccine, which maybe they can force on us later. Uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny is fabulous. She was talking about this last night. Uh, and I wondered why they're not talking about it, or why you, Dr. Oz, is not talking about it, and other doctors are not talking about it. Well, I know Sherry Tenpenny and, uh, and have you know, talked to her quite a bit. I, have, I made a, a protocol sheet, a survival kit sheet that Sean sent out, and I, you know, it's the most popular piece of paper I ever put out there. And uh, it's a it's a, you know, it's a quick cheat sheet of things you should do. And on there, I put vitamin D is the number one thing to do to prevent getting a virus. Not the coronavirus, because we don't know that yet. But Dr. Hannity, I'll conf- you know, I, I, uh, I, I could concur with his earlier comment about sunlight. Because the sun doesn't just give you vitamin D. It gives you about 50 other important chemicals, many of which have remarkable impact on your immune system, sleep, and lots of other functions that are healthy for you. So going out, and if you're able to, uh, for this Easter weekend, getting some sun on your front and your back and your legs, not your face, there's not much vitamin D absorbed through your face and you'll age yourself. But you know, put it in your back and your stomach before you put on sunblock and get a little bit of vitamin D or take it as a pill form, 1,200 units. Now, if you feel ill, data from people who have had the common cold, which is also often a coronavirus or a cousin of what we're dealing with now, uh, have, has pretty clearly shown that vitamin C and zinc um, and beta-glucan, which is basically mushroom, uh, have been effective in shortening the course or the severity of the illness. So I told people to go ahead and do that. It's not going to hurt. Some doctors are using high-dose vitamin C in the ICU for really sick patients. But I'm not talking about that kind of dose. This is just orally and as a pill form. Uh, so your points are well taken. Unfortunately, no one has had the time 
uh, and nor the confidence in these items to make a, a big difference. But zinc is actually breaking through. I interviewed a doctor from California, a very busy uh, emergency room doctor, and he's been using hydroxychloroquine, zithromycin, but he adds zinc, and he adds it for an important reason, and the French doctors agree with this concept, although they didn't initially start doing it. But you need the zinc actually to get through the cell, and that's partly what the hydroxychloroquine does. So you naturally have zinc in your body. That's probably enough, but if it's not, you need to give higher amounts. So he gives a lot of zinc with these meds, and he says... Within a day, he sees remarkable turnarounds in the patients that, are, that he uses this on. Now, not everyone gets it. Only people who he thinks are in trouble get it. But if you're, if you're having issues, that's what he does for his patients. It's fine. I've been taking zinc every day, too. What I've been doing is, you know, I do mixed martial arts. I've been doing it for seven years. Uh, as it relates to being outside and just feeling fresh air in the sun, uh, I've been working outside every day, working out outside, even even in the rain, and by the way, at a little bit of a distance, we're not doing the full-on contact like we usually do. And for me, psychologically, just the fresh air helps. And so that I'm just passing that along. Is it the panacea for people that are feeling down? No, but for me, it helps. It gives me a lift. It makes me feel better. Uh, so I imagine others feel the same way. Dallas, Texas, Lily on with Dr. Oz. Glad you called, Lily. How are you? I'm well, Dr. Oz. Um, I have a quick question. Is the ventilators causing more problems than good? Is it doing more damage to the lung? So this has been in the news a lot for the last couple of days. The, the ventilators are designed and used often for people who have damage to the lungs caused for, for, by pneumonia. So one of the challenges we find is you have to actually put higher pressure on the lungs to get them to open. It's like a balloon that you first start to blow up. You've got to put extra pressure in there to get it going, and then after that it you know, opens up comfortably. Well, it turns out with this virus, that's not really necessary for a lot of patients. And the real issue is they can't oxygenate. It's not so much that the lung is stiff. It's that the lung doesn't work. And so when you put extra pressure into a lung like that, you can risk damaging the lung. As soon as I get off this, uh, this wonderful hour with you guys taking questions, at 5 o'clock Eastern time, I've got a call with a bunch of intensive care unit doctors about this very issue because they think we might want to use a different tactic for these lungs to coat the lungs with a natural substance that we, we make but is disactivated by, this, by the virus. And that might allow us to have less people on ventilators, which is good because we don't have enough ventilators in New York right now, but also help sort of get people to survive. Because although Governor Cuomo said we have a 20% survival rate, which is, you know, tragic. Well, actually, we, they do have enough ventilators in New York. I mean, that shortage well, we that yeah, we, we do now. now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we, the, we have, the, but if there was a big breakout again in another part of the country, I just want to avoid Chicago having the same issue or Dallas, you know, crazy. No, I agree. So, look look at the hospital that we built, the Army Corps of Engineers in Washington State is now, they didn't put a single patient in it. The Navy ship Comfort has very few patients. The Javits Center never got anywhere near full. Um, mitigation efforts obviously work, starting with the travel bans, subsequent travel bans. But um, anyway, I, I said I'd shut up. I'm going to shut up. All right, back to our phones. Uh, Rob in New York is a doctor. Rob, how are you? Say hi to Dr. Oz. Sean, you're amazing, and I've been listening to you forever. I'm, a, I'm in a lake success, so I'm kind of a neighbor of yours. Oh, uh, you. Dr. Oz, I've been watching you forever. I'm a physician. I had the virus untested back in February, like your previous caller, sore throat, the fever. I'm a marathon runner. I fought it off in about two-plus weeks. The dry cough was awful. Here's my question to you. Number one, uh, we must, and a comment, we must get that antibody test. That's that's. So important because we society could get back to working because if we are we're gold we we're the people that can get back out there 
because the vaccine is going to take a lot longer. So I think that's the most important thing. I believe this virus, I've talked to many people in my field, as well as lots of friends, they seem to have had it back in January, February, all these same symptoms. Now, my, my question to you, on the, uh, more important, I'm on a personal level, since the dry cough, okay, that I had, my lungs just don't feel the way they used to feel. I fought it off. I, I was trained for the Boston Marathon. I'm an elite runner. So my lungs are, you know, are unique. But is there some residual uh, problems with, are you noticing with people that fought it off? And You know, I saw a paper. We only have about 30 seconds, Dr. Ross. Go ahead. There was a paper recently that reported that some people have irritation of their lung and scarring from it. So it doesn't go back all the way to normal. We don't know if it will take longer to get back to normal, what the long-term sequelae are. But some of this injury is profound. And people are short of breath who have never been short of breath. That's one of the, in fact, one of the most telltale signs is that fatigue and shortness of breath, you know, that goes along with it. And if you have that or you lose your sense of smell, don't ignore it because those could be signs. All right, Dr. Oz, number one, you've been amazing. You, you spend all day and all night seeking answers and cures. You're generous with your time. Uh, you're helping the country. Uh, thank you for all you're doing, and I hope you do get some sleep this weekend. Uh, it's been a rough week, a little, few more rough days, and hopefully we're on the other side and in the downslope. Sad that we had this uh, coronavirus thing come in there and take us from about the best economy ever, and it did knock us off the block. It did that, but, you know, once the coronavirus is gone, I fully expect us to come back to our prior high levels because the same policies, the same president, the same team's in place, and I, I think we're going to be in fine shape in a while. Uh, as a Trump supporter and a guy who thinks Trump is one of the best presidents we've ever had, I was delighted to see Joe Biden win the Democratic primary, not because I, I, I want to vote for Joe Biden, but because I think I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders would be very, very bad for this country. And if by chance, I think it's small chance, but if Biden wins the election, I think he would do a lot better job than any other Democratic candidate that was running for office. So I, I'm very pleased that Joe Biden is winning the nomination for the Democratic Party. We do have, I think, a fourth stimulus plan, rescue plan, call it what you like. It's coming at us. You don't think it works? You don't think we should do it? No, I don't. I mean, as you know, Stuart, I'm the biggest fan of this president's ever. I think he's been the best president so far in the last 50 years. I mean, really, I'm a huge fan. But this stimulus package will make things worse, not better. Uh, what we need to do is let people who work and produce keep their income, not have the government take it. And by putting that stimulus package in, just like in the 2008-2009 period and in the Great Depression, it will make the economy worse, not better. But uh, I don't get it, Art. I don't get it. I don't see how massive spending, oh, we're talking trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't see how that yes, does not put a flaw under the economy. I don't see how it hurts the economy. You explain it to yeah. me. You tell me how spending sure. all of this money actually hurts the economy. I will. Government spending is taxation. Government doesn't create resources, Stuart. They redistribute resources. Whenever the government spends a trillion dollars, it takes a trillion dollars from workers and producers who others would. So government spending is taxation. And as such, government spending will reduce the growth rate of the U.S. and will hurt the economy in bad, bad times. Now, when we're rich and when prosperous, government spending is perfect then because then we can afford to take resources away from producers. But right now, we need to be the fans of producers, not the fans of consumers. I'm very sorry, but that's what has to be done now. We need free markets more than ever. 
All right, now the question is, uh, when do we open up the economy? How do you open up the economy? How do you do it with the knowledge that there will be, not maybe, there will be a rebound? To me, the answer lies in the five-minute testing, but you have to maintain health privacy and civil liberties and constitutional rights. Uh, you know, uh, Art Laffer is with us. Uh, the president said to me the other night, you look so young uh, when I mentioned you. You did not agree with the the financial package rescue plan from the beginning. Your thought would have been that we have a payroll tax cut, $750 billion minimum. But anyway, it's been passed $2.2 trillion, unprecedented amount of money, and $4 trillion, uh, the Fed leaving up for loans, Art. Uh, now they're talking about phase three and a phase four. And I'm not sure... Uh, if there's any example in history, none that I can think of where that's ever worked. I think you're correct. I mean, it, it, it usually doesn't work. I mean, the incentive plan here on the, on the getting rid of the payroll tax would work. I mean, the nicest thing there is payroll taxes are about 9.64% of, uh, of a worker's pay taken out. And as far as there's the, the employer contribution, which is also 9.64%. So if we were to suspend the payroll tax, get rid of it, waive it, up, let's say through December 31st, that would increase the amount of pay workers receive, and it would reduce the cost for hiring a worker by the employers. And, you know, you'd find it very attractive to hire new workers and to retain the old workers that you've got. And the workers would find it very attractive to continue working. Uh, that's what I have been advocating, and that would have us bounce back very, very quickly. But, you know, giving an extra $600 to someone who's unemployed doesn't increase jobs. It, re it really doesn't, Sean. And uh, I, I wish it hadn't been put in there. But, you know, they did it. It's done. Uh, it won't hurt the economy too much, but it will hurt the long-run prospects. But my, my, my view is we're going to come out of this pandemic nicely soon, and uh, we're going to have a bounce back. The question is how high is it? And I think we can make it a lot higher. If well, we I'm talking right about policies. we have to watch for a health rebound. For example, I think you would agree with me that there are parts of the country where the very low incidence of, of positive tests for COVID-19. Uh, you know, there there is a, a part of our economy running. That's, you know, those are the truckers. Those are the farmers. Those are the people that are working in the grocery stores, in the pharmacies, in the mini-marts. You know, all of these people are up and out and working, viewed, quote, as essential. Uh, and um, what I'm trying to understand is, okay, what about that geographic part of the country that could fully and completely open up now? Uh, look, Nancy Pelosi is lecturing the president, you better not open up this economy too quickly. But she's saying it from the uh, the the comfort of her gated mansion in san francisco uh when she ought to be at work yeah but you're completely right what you're suggesting is profiling and i agree with you entirely there are certain areas of the country that don't have the problems like other areas why not let them start back to work sooner than the other areas there are certain segments of the population that are very prone to coronavirus and it's deadly for them make them stay at home make them keep their social distances but those people who've already had the disease and have the antibodies those people who are at very low risk why shouldn't they be allowed to go back to work especially if they're in businesses, Sean, that don't have huge crowds or something like that. You know, you, you should profile businesses, you should profile people, you should profile regions to start up those areas that can start. I see no reason not to do that. The answer to me is testing, and, and we're lucky. Abbott has 
come up with a test that you can get results in five minutes. Uh, they're producing 50,000 tests a day. If we were to mass produce those tests uh, and, and the machinery along with it, I think you could use the Defense Production Act as part of this. Abbott would, would show other companies how to manufacture this. We could do it around the clock. And every, for example, big building in New York can, can go out and buy five or ten of those testing machines. And, all right, this, there'll be certain new normals, temporarily at least, where, uh, where people, for example, essential employees can start coming back in. Others can work from home. Uh, those that do come back in, okay, maybe they're wearing masks and gloves, but maybe before they're even allowed in the building, they have their test administered privately by their company and nobody gets in the building if they test positive for COVID-19. You're perfectly sensible. I mean, that's thinking smart. And that's the way we should open up the economy by thinking smart, by not opening up those areas that are hugely high risk where mortality is, 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 is high. But opening up those areas with people who don't have the disease or have the antibodies already in them, you're completely correct. We have and we're getting the facilities to be able to do that and do that correctly. And that's what I'd love to see us do. Uh, do we have to open up everything so people are put together and old people who have comorbidities? No, of course not. But what you can do is make it open up to where people are productive, can go back to work and do much less damage to the economy. Let me, let me just say one thing, Sean. You know, a poverty-stricken economy is not a healthy place to be. Life expectancy under poverty is much lower than it is under prosperity. And sacrificing the economy in the, in the hopes of saving lives is really a, a double-edged sword. You not only can save the lives, but the poverty will cost lives and will cost a lot of lives over a long time. Well, the Fed chair, uh, Jerome Powell, said yesterday the economy is an emergency, uh, is deteriorating with alarming speed. And these remarks came after the central bank unveiled over two trillion in new loans to keep the economy afloat as much of the nation gets back into lockdown mode. It, uh, my knowledge of the economy, nowhere near the knowledge you have, tells me that would mean we're headed towards a predictably inflationary period. Am I wrong? Well, it could be inflationary. I don't see that yet, uh, but I don't see that. But I do see uh, the, the sharp downturn. Now, whether that causes inflation, we'll have to see. But right now, there are no signs in the marketplace, except for the very sharp rise in the price of gold that would indicate that there's any inflation on the horizon. Okay, so if you were to, to get in the president's ear, and I would like to see the task force. I know there's been talk about it. Have you talked to people in the White House? I know you're friends with Larry Kudlow. Have you spoken to him? Have you spoken to Mnuchin? Have you spoken to the president? I haven't spoken to them in the, any of them in the last week. Okay, and what would you tell them if you spoke with them today? To me, I would tell them, use the Defense Production Act and immediately uh, uh, create a manufacturing, uh, you know, masterpiece of, of getting these toaster-sized testing machines that Abbott created and crank out these tests in the tens of millions so that everybody that wants to test their employees can test it and then confidently open up every building in the country if we want. I think that's a perfect idea. I think that's the first thing we should do is make sure we get all the tests so we know what the facts are. It's really hard to propose solutions when you don't even know what the facts are. And I think your suggestion of getting everyone tested so we know who has it, we know who's immune to it, we know who is 
susceptible to it. I want to look at all of the age groups. For example, people 60 and over are far more prone to dying from it than our younger people. Uh, it has an age characteristic. It has a comorbidity characteristic. It even has a gender characteristic. I mean, there are all these things that you want to know, Sean, so you can make very good decisions and balance risk versus return out. And you're 100% all right. right. So predi- predi- give me your best prediction. It's going to be ugly. We already know the unemployment uh, application number. That's ugly. What is what is third quarter GDP going to look like? And I'm sorry, second quarter. And more importantly, if we now begin the opening of the country May 1st, all right, second quarter yeah. is April, May, June. Uh, what will the third quarter, July, August, September look like? Well, I think I think that quarter will look a lot better than the second quarter. I mean, the, the, the second quarter is going to be the hardest hit quarter, my, my view of the economy. You're going to see a very sharp drop. I, I really wish people wouldn't put that at annual rates because it's not going to be at an annual rate. If you have a drop of 8 or 9% in GDP, which is very possible uh, in the second quarter. Don't, don't you, know, you think you it could, it's even possible to be higher than quarter, that? But we, but we won't get back to where we were before for quite a while. Don't you think it's going to be, I would think, higher than 8 9% GDP drop? Well, 8 or 9% on a quarterly basis. Uh, on an annual basis, that would be 30-plus percent. Okay. You know, it would be now, 35% would be. If you dropped 8% in the, in the second quarter at an annual rate, that would be a drop of uh, 35%, which is unsustainable for a year. And then Nancy Pelosi already, you can see the Democrats, they, they're now saying they don't want to open the country, don't open it too quickly, and then on the other side of their mouth, they're saying we could have a depression because so many people are out of work. Well, if you're, not, if you're not opening the country up, you're not going to improve the economic situation, and you're going to have more people looking to the government for an answer. Aren't you, isn't it amazing? Hypocrisy knows no bounds, does it, Sean? I mean, it is incredible. They, they complain that we're not doing enough about the thing. We should shut the economy down more. And then they're complaining that Trump has an awful economy. I mean, you can't have it both ways, but they try to make it both ways. I think, I think the president's going to come out of this very, very, very positively, frankly. He's done a great job on the pandemic. Uh, he's a phenomenal leader. I think his polls are rising. I think I think if he handles this correctly from now on out and makes sure he gets this economy going soon back with the right incentives, I think he could be elected on the land side and the Republicans get the House and the Senate. All right, Art Laffer, do me a favor. Call all those people I mentioned. I want them to hear from you directly. I'll give, I'll I'm giving you, you a. I'm giving you. By right, the way, you Sean. didn't even know I was a big Thank enough, you. a big fan of yours till you hear me mention your name with the president. I, that cracked I me did. up. I, I said people told me that. You know, I go to bed real early. So what I is wrong with you? You going to bed early? Morning, and I heard that there was there. My daughter called me from California and everything like that. I said, Oh my God. I missed it. I missed it. So thank you very much. It was really nice watching well, you, even if it was on a replay. I've been a, I've been a fan for a long time. Art Laffer. Well, I'm thank a fan you. of yours, Sean. Thank you, sir. You're a great American. We need your voice. This is a crisis. This is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysterical xenophobia. China is going to eat our lunch. Come on. Man, they're not bad folks, folks. Since the outbreak, the Communist Party has been mobilizing overseas organizations to buy local supplies and send them to China. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. What a beautiful history we wrote together. Banning all travel will not stop it. President is right. That travel restriction on China, as every public health official we've talked to said, bought the country time. That was a very smart move right there. Xenophobia. Xenophobia. 
I complimented him on uh, on dealing with China. I'm not going nuts. And don't forget Zero Experience Hunter. Yeah, he got the one, one and a half uh, billion dollar banker China deal with Zero Experience again. He can't make it up. There is a COVID-19 doctor who is discovering that people aren't dying from the virus, but with an immune reaction to it. He's going to explain what this is as we get to the medical side of this uh, crisis uh, coming up. 800-941-SEAN is our toll-free telephone number. Final half hour on this Friday. People should be more concerned right now with the flu in this country. A lot of people are concerned about the coronavirus because they're hearing a lot of news about it right now. But the reality is comparing it to the flu, for example, it's not even close to being at that stage. Sanjay, you were telling us the last hour that we there's an important context we need to keep this in, and that is that the flu mm. is more deadly. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of the, the ironies, I think, that always comes up with this. Take a look at the numbers. How worried should Americans be about coronavirus? Coronavirus is not going to cause a major issue in the United States. Half of the people in America do not get a flu shot, and the flu right now is far deadlier. So if you're freaked out at all about the coronavirus, you should be more concerned about the flu, and you can actually do something about it and get a flu shot. There are tens of thousands of people who will die in the country or have some of them have already died. More are still going to die mm-hmm. because of Donald Trump's incompetence and lack of leadership. Here we have a president who is exploiting a national crisis to move forward his own agenda, his own revenge, his own profit. But he's still acting reckless and unmoored. He still can't rise to the occasion. What we saw was a hijacking hijacking of the task force press conference by a president determined to rewrite the history of his early and reprehensibly irresponsible response to this virus. This was a 9-11 level failure of the federal government. It was. It needs to be talked about and covered and scrutinized that way. Here in the United States, we are still not doing what we need to do to fight this deadly virus because of a complete lack of leadership. All right, there's the mob, there's the media, 800-941-SHOT. You know where the failures start? It's, the pointing of the fingers is, is just insane. But it is what it is, and it's predictable as the day is long. Now, there is a doctor, uh, Thomas Yedegar is his name, and he's the medical director of ICU, medical director of uh, hospitalist services, uh, command leader for the COVID team at Providence Cedar sinai Medical Center, practicing pulmonary critical care doctor for over 20 years. And I noticed that he had been on Fox and Friends earlier this week. And what he has discovered is that what his suspicion was that a majority of COVID-19 patients, the ones that were dying, were not dying from the virus itself, but from the activation of the per- person's own immune system and a, a rare syndrome that has been emerging. And it occurs in a subset of patients, small subset, with COVID-19. Anyway, Dr. Yedegar is uh, with us. Uh, sir, how are you? Thank you for joining us. And, uh, well, thank you for what you do every day also. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's interesting that you're saying this because my sister has a very close friend uh, getting very good care in a hospital, uh, even has been on hydroxychloroquine and and Zithromax and zinc. That's part of the hospital protocol. I won't mention the hospital. Uh, But even with it, she's been struggling. And they finally ended up intubating her. And what they kept coming back with was, well, and she had other underlying health issues I won't mention on the air. Nothing serious, but complications. And 
what they noticed is the immune response is what they kept coming back to. Is this exactly what you're talking about? Uh, yes, Sean. This is exactly uh, in the patients that I had where they had difficulty as well. This was exactly what we found is that it was really their immune system that had been hyperactivated. And instead of, you know, trying to kill the virus, now it was doing damage to the organs um, themselves. All right. So explain what actually happens. In other words, this is a very small subset of people that have COVID-19, correct? Yes. Not everyone that gets uh, COVID-19 develops this syndrome. Um, it's only a subset of patients where the virus activates the immune system. And unfortunately, the immune system, instead of healing, um, the body is now starting to hurt the body. Okay, so what is the way, now when you've treated these patients, you've developed a guideline for this, and your guideline works. What is it? So the guideline is really based on uh, very closely following the disease pattern of COVID. Um, what we find is that there's a cer certain markers, and these markers are checked by everyone. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people are checking a lot of markers. Some of the markers are helpful. Some of the markers can be very confusing. Um, you have to pick out the ones that are important, which will kind of sound off the alarm of what's happening in the patient's body. Um, the syndrome is very um, hard to detect. It's very elusive. All of our normal things that we check, all of the normal blood, te blood tests that we check, the normal x-rays that we check, those, these don't help you in finding and diagnosing this disease. Uh, the first thing the clinician needs to do is you know, make sure, first of all, that there isn't something else going on so that uh, there isn't a patient isn't having a bacterial pneumonia or having septic shock or some other reason. Uh, once you've made sure that there isn't another reason for the patient getting sicker and sicker and sicker, then you have to think about this disease. If you don't think about it, you're not going to find it and you're not going to treat it appropriately. Well, I mean, okay, so once you catch this, for example, I, I'm, I'm going to put you in touch with my sister because she's, you know, been, she's a nurse herself, and mm -hmm. uh, it, I, I, I don't think this has been as clearly identified as, as you are identifying it, but you have, in your 20 years of intensive care uh, practice, you never even thought about it, and so you can understand why other doctors are not thinking about this either. How do you deal with it when you see it because you're saving lives because of this knowledge? Yeah, so exactly. And then the, the treatment is really counterintuitive. Uh, typically in the ICU, we want the immune system to be strong. We want it to be active. We want to make sure that uh, patients don't get any infections in the ICU because that's one of the leading causes of death for a patient that's in the ICU. But in this case, for this syndrome, to heal such patients, you really need to suppress their immune system by giving them very, very strong immunosuppressive medications. Okay. And you, and you know specifically what they are, correct? Um, I do. I do know what they are. Um, they're out there. People are using them. You know, we're waiting for uh, well-controlled randomized studies to come up so that we can arrange for a, a protocol. Um, but at this time, you know, when you have a dying patient in front of you, um, you, you try to do your best to, to save them. Yeah. I mean, it's scary. You know, one of the things everyone was so hung up on, get the ventilators, get the ventilators, get the ventilators. You get to the intubation part. That That's not the moment you want to be at. You want to mitigate people getting on that as much as possible. Exactly. Exactly. For this syndrome, you, you got to catch it early and then you got to treat it aggressively early enough in the disease. If you wait long enough, you know, you're not going to get to it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on hydroxychloroquine? You've been watching the debate go on around the country. What are your thoughts? You know, I don't really have enough experience to give it one way or another. I know there's a lot of uh, controlled studies that are being done, and, and uh, you know, like, like everyone else, I'm waiting to see. 
Um, my, my, my overall feeling, though, it probably does work for a subset of patients. Um, if you think of a cytokine storm, think of it as like a tornado. So maybe if it's before a level one tornado, um, you can probably catch it off and slow it down. If it's a level five tornado that's coming at you, you need much more immunosuppressive medication. It's probably not strong enough. All right, Dr. Yadegar, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for sharing this information. So uh, people, if they're seeing this specific subset reaction of somebody that they know, love, care about, uh, that is dealing with COVID-19, it will be helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Sean. Okay, uh, 800-941-SEAN if you want to be a part of the program. All right, let's get to our phones on this Friday. Uh, all right, let's say hi to Bill is in New Jersey. Bill, hi, how are you? And welcome to the program. Happy, well, it's Good Friday today, Easter Sunday, um, and Passover as well. How are you? Good. How are you, Sean? Happy Easter. Thank you, sir. Happy Easter. I used to work for Novartis Pharmaceuticals. out. They had a plant out in Suffern, and they we manufactured everything from, like, Diavan for uh, blood pressure to this uh, Cortem that they sent over to Africa for malaria patients. And it was right up in Suffern, New York, which isn't that far outside of New York City. And the place was there since 1966. And they closed it back down back in like 2014, 2015, uh, sent everything overseas um, because of the tax, the corporate taxes they were paying in New York State. Um, they, they, and it's just ironic that they were, this place was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We ran 12-hour shifts. And I was on the Cortem line for quite a while as a mechanic and they they sent the you know we all lost our jobs like 500 and something people they sent it overseas and uh and you know <laughs> now, now they're like trying to get this stuff i don't i don't know if there's a a backlog on it but they could have had it right right up the street <laughs> which uh, is uh, ironic you know well novartis said they're going to give 130 million doses of hydroxychloroquine to people and to the country we already have 30 million doses that are being you know given out day and night so um, yeah, yeah that's I, I think for the country, that's, that's, I, look, the mobile is, I mean, this is the irony of shutting down the country. Okay, we still want our, our pharmacies filled. We want our grocery stores stocked and filled. We want to be able to go to Lowe's and Home Depot, and we want to go pick up supplies, and uh, people are out there doing all those things, but we're saying, but everyone else can't work. Uh, it is madness at this point. And, you know, listening to the uh, the ever-lecturing Nancy Pelosi you know, cordoned off in the confines of her multi-million dollar mansion in a gated community in San Francisco, saying she's not, they're not going back to work in Congress. Why not? If the truckers are working and the farmers are working and the store clerks are working and everybody else is stocking the shelves, why can't she get back to work? Unbelievable. Well, we might hit a depression. Oh, then what are you doing in San Francisco? How about getting back to Washington and fixing it? Helping, but no, they're too busy putting together the latest shift show investigation of uh, Donald Trump. It is unbelievable. Anyway, 800-941-SEAN, if you want to be a part of the program. Thanks, Bill. Uh, let's say hi to Attila in Wisconsin. Hey, Attila, how are you? Hey, Sean, how are you doing today? I'm good, sir. How are you today? Great. Uh, before I make my point, I want to ask you a question. Is okay. withholding aid only an impeachable offense if it concerns any country but America? I, I, what withholding aid meaning uh, to like the WHO? Meaning the Democrats withholding aid to Americans. Oh, you mean what, oh, holding up the aid for displaced Americans, their relief package, so they can fund the uh, Kennedy uh, for the Arts Performing Arts Center and the 
National Endowment for Humanities and National Endowment for the Arts, and then they want to that's change immigration right. and election law. You mean that that group of people? Yeah, that's Nancy that's Pelosi. Right. They're conducting a self-serving quid pro quo, and by their own admission, uh, these snapperheads are conducting an impeachable offense right in front of everybody. They're withholding aid to, for America. Uh, and they don't see a problem with that. It's only Ukraine, and the president didn't. He was exonerated, but they think it's just dandy to withhold aid from Americans in a crucial time just so they could get their Democrat wish list. Let me tell you something. They quid and they pro and they quo all the time. That's how Washington works. What an irony. Great point. Jim in Connecticut. Jim, how are you? Sean, I'm fine, my friend. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I want to get this country up and running now. I'm getting very anxious about it. Well, you know, before I make my point as well, I just want you to know that you're a great American, you and Rush and Mark and all you guys for the hard work you do every day, bringing us the truth. Well, the mob and the media is too busy, you know, hating on Donald Trump every second of every day. And I'm sick of that, too. And I'm sick of getting lectures from Nancy Pelosi also from the from the, you know, her press releases from her mansion. I'm sick of it. Get back to work, Nancy. Yeah, my God, it makes me sick when I hear him say the things. And I guarantee you, and I'm a nurse in Connecticut. And last uh, mm-hmm. this past Saturday, I was positive for COVID-19. And, yes. uh, you know, I had a few a couple of rough days. And um, mm-hmm. I first, I'm sorry about that. How are you doing? Yeah, Sean, that's OK. I'm fine. I, I, I um, did a video appointment with my doctor. Mm-hmm. And asked him if he would put me on Plaquenil, and he did. And uh, since I started it two days ago, I'm feeling so much better. So Plaquenil, much better. by the way, for those that don't know, is is hydroxychloroquine. Um, right, well, right. Well, first of all, you know, if you lived in New York, you wouldn't be able to get that medicine if you lived in New York unless you went to a hospital, which is the last place you need to be right now because you're not that sick yet, and the Plaquenil is going to help you. That is absolutely crazy, and I guarantee you, I guarantee that if uh, Morning Blowhole Joe and his wife Mishka and uh, Rachel Clinton Maddow even thought they had contracted disease, they would be knocking people down in line and have their hand out to get the medicine first, even though they say it doesn't work and don't use it. it. You know, they are actually hurting people in what they're doing and what they're saying, and they have absolutely no conscience, no empathy, no sympathy for any American. They are all out for themselves. Look, you know, first of all, listen, Trump- you are smart to talk to your doctor. Uh, make sure you stay in touch with your doctor. You did this in consultation with your doctor, and I recommend that for everybody. Um, but, you know, all these nurses and doctors and medical professionals, even the janitors in the hospital, they're all putting their lives at risk here to get this thing. Thank you for what you do. Get a speedy recovery. I know you're probably going to be back on the front lines immediately thereafter. If you need any help or anything, or any of our doctors, we'll put you in touch with them if you need any help, all right? Best, and I can only imagine what this country would be going through if we didn't have Donald Trump in the White House right now. If we had all, a bumbling all he Biden. does is get a handful of crap from the mob and the Democrats. That's all he gets. Now we got another. We got a coronavirus investigation in the middle of the pandemic. We're going to start the investigation. That's where their mind is at. And then lecturing about depressions, but you can't open up the economy. It's it's insane. This is a form of insanity. All right, that's going to wrap things up for today. It is Good Friday. Um, I know it's Easter on Sunday, and I know it's going to be a little difficult. Families won't be getting together the way they usually do. And uh, But you know what? We have so much to be thankful for. We've got the greatest medical uh, scientists in the world. 
We got the best doctors, the best nurses. The government has done their job. Now let's think about, you know, what is Easter about? It's about rising Jesus and coming back to life. And he paid the ultimate sacrifice for the world. And this renewal that is Easter, we need now an American renewal and safe opening of our country. That's my prayer for everybody this Easter. And everyone say, everybody stay safe and healthy. Have a great Easter. We'll see you back here on Monday.